We are continuing on in our series called A a First Century Faith for the 21st Century as we go through the book of Romans. And we have been in this series, oh, about six or seven weeks now. And we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Romans, um, this seminal book that uh, the Holy Spirit used Paul to write. This is really the greatest of all of Paul's epistles. And we have been saying that if you understand the book of Romans, in my belief, you understand most of the major themes of the New Testament. And so today we're going to look at this passage, Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 31. It's our next passage here. And so let's go ahead and stand now as we look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 31. I think we have it on the screen as well. Paul wrote this in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is faith in Jesus. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overturn Overthrow the law by this faith by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's pray together. Father, and that is our desire to not live by the law of the world, the law of God, but really by the law of faith. Because as we live by the law of faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we will then uphold the law of God and be freed from the law of the world. Uh, May you deepen our understanding, Lord, uh, through the sermon of the great salvation we have for those of us who believe, and maybe not to have multiple ways to apply this in a practical sense, but really just emerge from this time with a greater sense of awe, a greater sense of the righteousness, the glory of uh, the rescuing work of God in our lives, Lord. We pray you do this through Jesus Christ, and in his his name we pray, amen and amen. Have a seat. Thank you very much. All right, so we are in this message, and it's called The Law of Faith Through Jesus Christ. And uh, before we do, I'm actually going to spend some time summarizing um, kind of the, the other options that we have outside of the law of faith in Jesus Christ. Every human being falls into one of three categories. You can go all the way back you know, into the scriptures, into biblical times, and every single human being that has ever lived... Uh, falls into one of three categories. These are the first two categories, and then we'll get to the third category in our passage today in in Romans chapter 3. Most human beings that have ever walked this planet do not live 
by the law of faith in Jesus Christ. It's really a small percentage that actually get to that place. Most human beings who ever walk this planet walk by a different kind of law. And there are really only two options for every single human being outside of the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Number one, that you can live by the law of the world. Or number two, you can try to live by God's laws on your own outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Every other human being that does not have genuine faith in Jesus Christ falls into one of these two categories. What do we mean when we say the law of the world and the law of God outside of Christ? So let's take a brief moment to look at the law of the world. What do we mean by that? Naturally, our society is run by laws. That is true by any civilization, whether you are looking at the most primitive tribes or you're looking at the most advanced Western societies in the developed world. Every society has a sense of laws. And these laws that we all uh, ascribe to, that we all follow, we all understand that laws are necessary for society to run. Laws are necessary that we don't tear each other apart, that there's a minimal amount of laws, a laws for a speed limit, a laws to define what a crime is or what's not a law for uh, who is considered an adult or not, um, et cetera, and et cetera. And as we live in the natural world, we understand that we need laws. But natural laws do not change the human heart. They do not change the human spirit. What laws do in the natural world is they just keep society functioning at a general level. But they don't actually change us spiritually, the laws of the world. In fact, when you think about it, the laws of the world are really not just written statutes and rules and laws. They're really about who or what body of people do we recognize as authorities over our life? Do we recognize the government as an authority over our life? Do we recognize financial institutions as authorities over our life? Do we recognize public education uh, uh, institutions over our life? The laws of the world are really primarily about who we recognize that has authority over our life. That those laws and that authority are what makes society function, but it doesn't change our hearts. It doesn't change our souls. And so what happens naturally in human beings is that while we recognize these things are necessary for society function, we naturally want to rebel against it. We want to change it. We don't trust it. We want to remake these rules of authority over our life because the human heart naturally doesn't want to have authority over it. And so if you look at our world today, we don't want to recognize the authority of the world. I mean, we have a natural sense of distrust towards authority, towards the laws of this world. We have distrust. You look at COVID. COVID played out with a massive amount of global mistrust, distrust of world authorities. You think about modern-day American politics. There is a massive amount of distrust of modern-day politics. Are they out for themselves? Are they out for us? Are there these elite secret societies that are behind this with conspiracy theories to control us in ways that we don't? All of these things. We think of a country like Russia, a country like China, you know, Ukraine, is China going to invade uh, Taiwan, etc.? 
And there's immense distrust in the political arena of the authorities that be. You think about the public education system. And we think about massive distrust about the things that are being taught for many of our children in the public education system on in issues of morality. And so we distrust many of the authorities, the public authorities and the institutions in our lives. There's another aspect where we look at the worldly authorities and we don't just distrust them. We re- actually rebel against it. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw that video this week of some of these members um, of these environmental groups. And there was these two, you know, they look like teenage or women or in their 20s. They took like tomato soup and they threw it on a flower, flowery painting of his like Monet or Van Gogh, one of the two, right, in a museum. And then they super glued their hands to uh, the wall as a protest against environmental degradation, right? As if like ruining a painting really makes that point. I didn't get it. But then there was these other videos of other people actually going into grocery stores recently and pouring out milk all over the floor as another person uh, wore this uh, uh, sign that said plant-based only. And so they're pouring all the milk out all over the floor in department stores. There was another video of another young person painting like orange all over the side of a building for a corporation that they didn't like. We rebel against authority when we don't believe or trust it anymore. So we distrust, we rebel. We think about worldly authority and we say, no, we want to remake authority we want to create our own system against worldly authority you think about what's happening uh, in the homeschooling movement that's a remaking of authority of, of education of children you think about what's happening in um, the 21st century remaking of the financial order with the currency debasement that's happening globally right now inflation out of control uh, places like uh, you know argentina that's that's uh, um, uh, experiencing 1,200% of inflation, or you can go to places like Venezuela or um, Lebanon or places like this that have like 100% inflation every year. We think it's bad in this country, and there are people who want to remake the financial system through blockchain technologies, and because we don't trust financial authorities. We think about um, the main authority, though, of the world is how do we respond to worldly authority in the realm of spiritual things? I mean, have you noticed that today people don't want to submit to the institution of religious authority over their life? Uh, you, have, you have to look at the reality that in every successive generation, from the boomer generation to the Gen Xer generation to the millennial generation to Gen Z, um, there is a massive exodus of the church and a massive decline of evangelical biblical beliefs. People don't want to submit to worldly or to authority even in the church. And so what worldly authority does is they say, I'm not going to submit to spiritual authority in the church. I'd rather make up my own authority by saying I'm spiritual and I'm good. I'm just not into organized religion. I'm spiritual and good. I'm just into not going to recognize centralized spiritual authority over my life. And so people rebel against the laws of the world. They rebel against even the church. I have friends who grew up in church. I was just talking with one recently, and he wants nothing to do with organized religion. I've invited him to our church many times over the years. Not really interested, but he's a friend. He's real friendly to me. Sometimes we hang out. Um, But he'll go to uh, an experience called sound bath. 
And I, I saw something on his social media feed because we follow each other. I was like, what's this? He goes, oh, it's sound bath. I went to it. Me, I took my wife to it. It's out in the desert. And we, went, we went into this big dome in the desert where we laid on like these comfortable couches. They played uh, meditative music. They drop, you know, ointment on our, you know, foreheads. They did kind of vibration sound tuning of our spirits and they're really into kind of creating your own religion because they don't want um, a sense of authority of the church over their lives. There's another guy who used to go to uh, the church I pastored in Long Beach. And everyone liked this guy. He was very talented as, um, as a filmmaker. And uh, Lorraine and I actually went to... Uh, uh, film showing of his, and he won the award for the night. We were very proud of him. It was a film. It was clever. It was funny. Um, it was a short film that he produced, and I, I commended him on his uh, Christian integrity amidst a night of cinematic darkness with the rest of the short films. And, um, and then he left our church. I would run into him over the years at California Fish Grill or Trader Joe's. Say, how you doing? Have you been to church? Come to our church. Uh, actually came to City Bible Church a few times. And um, was in an ungo- uh, is in an ungodly relationship right now. Um, and I said, hey, you, you have to get out of that because you, you know this is wrong according to the Lord. And you know that your spirituality is declining. I know, I know, I know. You know, I know I need to do the right thing, but he wouldn't and just kind of went away. Well, uh, recently we saw him post something that he now, he now identifies as a she. And he, she is now using their film talents to make a documentary on their journey from a he to a she. And so you have people out there who've been seduced by the world who don't want to submit to the authority of the church, now making their own authority in perverse and inverse ways apart from the authority of God. And... When you look in Romans chapter 1, this is exactly what Paul was talking about. If you look in Romans chapter 1, we don't have it on the screen. In verse 28 through 32 of Romans chapter 1, just by way of review, this is exactly what Paul is talking about that we looked at uh, several weeks ago. He says, society can get to such a point where it rejects the authority of God, just not even wanting any authority over its life, that It says in verse 29, actually, they say they were filled. This is what happens to the human spirit where it assumes full authority over its own life outside of God's authority. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice this thing deserve to die, they don't only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And I think about what used to be my dear friend who's now using his talents to promote evil out in the world. And what is happening is that is not a social struggle for gender neutrality or freedom of sexual expression. What the Bible is saying is that is actually the unrestrained soul casting off all authority from God to now exercise your life and to do as you see fit. And so that's one option. 
for human beings. We can live according to the laws of the world, but really rejecting any kind of form, true form of authority over our spirituality. A second option for people is they can say, no, you know, I I need to come to God. I I need to um, do my best to fulfill the law of God on my own. I don't need faith in Jesus Christ. I didn't just see what the Bible says, 10 commandments. I'll try and obey the morality, the values of the Bible, and that'll be good enough. And so there's a second category of people. And they say, I will try and live by the law of God without faith in Christ. And as we've been looking at, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he says, that's not going to work. He says, if you try and live according to the laws of God without faith in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, what is going to happen is this. Number one, if you are a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, and you try and live out, you know, try and be a good person on your own, what's going to happen, Paul says in Romans 2, is that you'll die, you'll come before God, and before God, God will essentially say to you, look, you didn't hear about the Bible, you didn't hear about Jesus Christ, Fair enough. But you did have a standard of right and wrong. Okay, even though you didn't hear the gospel, you had your own standard of right and wrong that you yourself determined. So let's just judge you by your own standard of right and wrong. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 2, it is in that moment when the unbeliever comes before judgment before God, their own conscience will alternately, in the words of Paul in Romans 2, excuse and excuse them. Which means what? You'll be coming before God as an unbeliever and say, yeah, I did that. Oh, I'm glad you saw that, God. I'm glad you have a record, that good act that I did. And my conscience is excusing me. Oh, but you saw everything, right? Oh, I I forgot about that. Oh, you saw that? You have a record? Oh, uh, my, my own conscience will accuse me, and that will be enough to convict us and to damn us. So Paul says in Romans 2, by way of review, that living by the law of God and being a Gentile to live on your own law uh, will, you will be proved guilty by your own conscience before God. And secondly, maybe you want to live by God as a Jew. He says in Romans 2, you know, these Jews, they, had, they were circumcised. They had the law. They were God's chosen people. They were the Jews. So they thought they were special. They thought that, and they were special, but they thought that that was enough to save them because they had all of those Jewish advantages. Paul goes on to say in Romans 2, But no, what the law is actually doing is it's revealing to you your own darkness. Because even though you teach, don't steal, you still steal. Even though you say to other people, don't commit adultery, you still commit adultery. And so you reveal you're still in darkness, even though you're teachers of the law. You reveal your own hypocrisy, which is enough to judge you. And so all of this, Paul Paul begins to bring this to a head. And he says... In the last time I spoke two weeks ago, again, by way of review, when we looked at chapter 3 in verse 9 through 18, 9 through 18, Paul says this, whether you are a Gentile as trying to live by God's law on your own, or a Jew that's trying to live by God's law on your own, Paul says this in verse 9 of chapter 3, you're still under sin. Verse 10, there's nobody, Jew or Gentile, that's righteous. Verse 11, no one does good. Verse 13 through 18, he says that human beings outside of Christ 
are like, their throats are like graves. Their tongues are like asps. They shed blood. Their lives are filled with ruin, misery. They don't know peace. They don't know the fear of God. Verse 20. In fact, they have the knowledge of sin. And verse 19, and they know that they're accountable to God. And so when we come to our passage now, you look in verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 23. And in verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now let's pause there for a second. When then we're going to get into some of the main thrust of our passage in a moment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you're a Jew, an unbelieving Jew, or an unbelieving Gentile. Why is that important? I've given messages here. Okay, I remember like four years ago, I gave a message on Easter. No, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, I think it was like the first Easter. You can go back to 2016. I remember we sent all these flyers out to the community of Cerritos. And there's a, a bunch of people that showed up that we didn't even know who they were. They got the flyers or, or, or something. And um, I, I basically preached from Romans chapter 6. And I said, you know, the Bible says that you're a slave to sin, that your sin has caused death. And there was one guy, his face was so mad. And, contort- and believe me, when you're a preacher, you can kind of, you just have this special talent. When people are like looking at like this, right? You can tell they're not happy with what you're saying. And as soon as I ended the sermon, he just got up and stormed out the door. And I was like, yeah, that pretty much offended him. And I don't know if he'll be back. But actually, if that's why the guy didn't like and he just didn't maybe like the way I was dressed, there was actually a spiritual reason. That guy should not have reacted that way. What he should have done is to come up to me and say, thank you. Thank you. Because even though that was offensive to me, it's really good for me to hear that I'm a sinner, that I'm not good. Now, my question to you is this. Why? Why is it good for us to tell people that they're sinners and not good? Look, I get it, right? We're human beings. We don't want to tell people. We just want to say, hey, you're a good person. We get it. None of us actually wants to go for it and say, hey, bro, um, you're evil, all right? <laughs> but why? why? Why is that a good thing? I'm going to give you four reasons why that's good. And maybe flip the narrative here. And get passive our, past our fear and move on to um, faith. Number one, when Paul says all have fall, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in verse 23, why is that good? Why should that be our message? And why is that a positive thing? Number one, this is important because number one, it brings clarity. It brings clarity that human beings are evil. This brings clarity that human beings are are by nature evil. Why is that important? It's because we live in a time here in the 21st century where people don't believe that. What they believe is they say people are capable of evil. What they believe is we are the victims of evil from somebody else. What they believe is that any evil can be fixed in some way on our own. They believe we're capable 
were victimized by evil and we can fix evil, but they do not believe that by nature human beings are born evil and we remain evil outside of Christ. And so what the Bible does and why this is good is it's actually bringing clarity to say, don't waste your time thinking that evil can be overcome by human efforts of man. Don't waste your time thinking it's everyone, always someone else's fault. And that's why, you know, I grew up the hard way and it was my fault of why I am the way I am. Don't waste your time thinking that it's just, you know, if I can just figure out the right counselor or the right medication, I can overcome this evil. Don't waste your time. The Bible is saying, no, just recognize that you at the core are polluted, defiled by evil at your core. And once you understand that, you can start along the right path. So it brings clarity. Number two, this is good because it brings a standard by which we are judged. The Bible is talking here in Romans 3, and it brings a standard by which we are judged evil. What is that standard? It is God's law. This is important because our natural mind does not think that way. If you were to ask the average person, say, do you think you're evil or good? What would their answer be? It goes something like this. Um, And you said, well, you know, what is your standard if you think you're evil or good? What standard would you use? Normally, people's answers would go like this. Number one, the standard I use to determine whether I'm good or evil is um, I compare myself to this other guy who's more evil. And if I'm less evil than this other guy, this coworker, this person in the news, you know, that, that weird, terrible uncle, whatever that might be, I'm a good person because as I compare myself to that person, I'm good and they're evil. That might be one answer. You just compare it to someone else who's worse. Another example might be, um, well, are you good and evil? What standard would that be? Well, you think, um, well, as I think about my own life, I've done more good than evil in my own life. And so as I think of my own life, I don't even have to compare it to other people. If I just think of my own, my own life, if I think subjectively I've done more good than evil, then I'm good. And I'll use that standard. And that's how I'll be right with God or make it to heaven. And the Bible says, no, that's not the standard. The standard is what God has declared as his law in the scriptures of how we are to live. The Bible says that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, Matthew 5. And as we compare our life to him, we are either perfect or we are evil. And that is the standard. So it brings clarity. It brings a standard of judgment. Number four, we now understand that evil will be punished in the end. This is very good. So when the Bible says In Romans chapter 3, again, leading up to our passage, in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, the world may be held accountable to God. Verse 19, we understand what Paul is saying. He says, the world will be accountable to God in judgment. The world knows that it is in sin and it will be held accountable. That's good news. Why? Because we don't have to worry as Christians that evil will go unpunished. When you have been the recipient of evil, you cry out for justice. You want God to be just. You want God to take vengeance on those he chooses to take vengeance on. If there is an injustice, because a lot of times, you know what happens is evil gets away with evil. In our world, in our fallen world, evil is actually rewarded. 
And that's what it says in Psalm 73, right? In Psalm 73, David says that my feet had almost stumbled when I envied the wicked. But then I remembered their destiny and how they were going to be judged by God. So even David, he envied the wicked because he felt that they were getting away with things. But then what, what drew him back was he recognized, no, I remembered their end apart from God. And so sometimes we have this uh, capacity to, to envy those who are wicked. We have this um, desire to see wickedness punishment and wickedness punished. And if you read in the Bible that wickedness will be punished, is held accountable to God, that's actually a good thing. Because you can know God is just and he will take care of doing the right thing in the end. Number four, hearing that the Bible calls us not good, no, not one, is actually good for us because it, it leaves us in a place where we are aware that we need God's forgiveness. We're aware that we need God's forgiveness. So you don't need Christ. You don't need God's forgiveness unless you have violated something before God. And how terrible it would be, right? I mean, I, I think hell is going to be populated with so many people who will be the fulfillment of Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said, many people will come to me and say, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these good works in your name, Lord? And Jesus will say what? Matthew 7, get away from me. I never knew you, you evil doers. And what a shock that will be to people in hell, thinking, man, I tried to live by your law, God, but I, I just, you know, but I didn't deal with my sin by asking you for forgiveness and following you and knowing you, but I tried to deal with it, tried to do all the good things to make up. And Jesus will say, get away from me, you're evil doers. You didn't know me. Because you didn't recognize that you were truly evil in the first place. And secondly, your second error was you didn't seek me for forgiveness to know me. So you made two errors. So this is actually very good news. Because if you think about it, where would you be? Where would I be? If the Bible was not declaring to us in here in the book of Romans and elsewhere, that none of us were good, no, not one. That we're going to be held accountable, God. You and I would be adrift tossed to and fro by every wind of cunning doctrine, Ephesians chapter 4. Do you want that? It's better that we know the truth of the human condition. And so now, as we come to this passage right here, we have a proper background. And I'm just going to make a few comments on this passage. Um, Number one, I'm going to make three main comments on this passage. It's pretty complex. There's a lot here. But I want to draw out these three points. Number one, I want to draw out a point of righteousness. A point of righteousness. If you go back to our passage, um, I want you to notice starting in verse 21 and following, how many times between verse 21 and 26, the righteousness of God is mentioned. He says, the righteousness of God is manifest. Verse 21, verse 22, the righteousness of God through, is, comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 24 and verse 25, we are justified by God's grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation of, uh, who is our propitiation through his shed blood. That, that justified 
and we are made righteous. Verse 25 and 26, this was to show that God's righteousness was displayed to us at the present time. It's fascinating because when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he didn't primarily go to the cross for you and me. Now, that is an outcome of him going to the cross. We are forgiven, and we are going to heaven. We have peace with God. We all know that. We all say that. We're thankful for God for that. But that is actually not the primary reason why Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. Yes, that is the byproduct. He brought us into faith to be, have peace with God and to go to heaven. But that is secondary. The primary reason why Jesus Christ went to the cross and rose again was to display the righteousness of God. This is what Paul is saying here. Verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Verse 26, again, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ primarily was to display that God is righteous. We are not. And he will give us a way into his righteousness through Christ. And so the brilliance of Romans chapter 3 is it summarizes our lowly states. No, not one good. And it elevates the righteousness of God. And it's a beautiful thing, you guys, because when you're a Christian, you can know that your life is about the most important thing in the universe which is the righteousness of God. The righteousness, the holiness, the purity of God is the primary characteristic of God. God is love, the Bible says in 1 John 4, but God's holiness is actually the primary characteristic of God. His perfection, His purity, Love is a byproduct out of that. And so it's wonderful because God sent Jesus Christ, his son, himself in human form to reveal to us his righteousness, to glorify himself. And those who believe in that are aligning their lives with that which is most important in the universe, which is the primary characteristic of God, which is his righteousness. This is a beautiful thing. Because it's far better to align your life with the righteousness of God than it is with the evil of Satan. Now, you may laugh and say that's so obvious, but I'm not so sure as I look around in 21st century culture that everyone gets that. I mean, today, one of the signs that we live in a post-Christian age is not that people embrace the righteousness of God. It is when they start to take the evil of Satan and commercialize it. It becomes entertainment. It becomes fashion. It becomes a next Netflix series where we begin to look at the dark things of Satan and say, oh, that's not like this wicked witchcraft that's this fringe thing like uh, of the Puritan age. No, we actually embrace it now in our fashion, in our entertainment. And say, oh, the darkness, it's, it's not just fun, it's fashionable, it's cool, and it's pop culture. And we see that in all different aspects, right? From hip-hop stars who will put blood in their sneakers and sell them, calling them satanic sneakers, 
to the magic arts being displayed in all forms of witchcraft, sorcery, and necromancy in the shows that we watch. Hey, it's entertainment. You put, you put a cool show to it, you edit it in a certain way, you put some cool actors or actresses in there, and we'll consume it. And so you have to realize that in the culture we live in today, not everyone thinks this way. See, most people don't because their eyes are blinded by Satan. And he doesn't even have to show up with a pitchfork and, and red horns and a red outfit anymore. He just shows up at some cool pop culture package. And so for Christians who live apart from that, we say, no, um, that is the way of a fallen world. We are set apart from that. We actually see as Christians the righteousness of God as the good way, as the life-giving way, as the right way, as the way of the truth, because we are the people of truth and life and goodness in the Lord. And so that's not something to be taken lightly, that when you come to Jesus Christ, you are about the righteousness of God. I want to make a second point about this passage you look in verse 24 and 25. He says, verse 24, um, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God put forth, forward, as a propitiation, propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation basically means a satisfaction. His blood was shed to satisfy. And that we receive all that by faith. Now keep your eyes there on verse 24 and 25. These words justified, redemption. How? By the sacrifice, the satisfaction of the shedding of his blood. That's clearly the blood that was shed by Christ on the cross. What is Paul talking about here in verse 24 and 25? He's talking about what theologians say is the atonement. The atonement. What is the atonement? It's a theological term that talks about what was the meaning of Christ's crucifixion on the cross. Now, digression. If I was to ask you, Christian, what is the meaning of Christ's crucifixion on the cross? You would say what? We probably all say the same thing. Well, if I was to explain the atonement, the crucifixion on the cross, uh, that was to, um, for Christ to die for our sins so that we may be forgiven, so that we may know God, that we may go to heaven. And that's true. That's true. Okay. But if I was to ask you a deeper question and say, not just what was the meaning, what was the outcome for you, but that's the outcome for you, right? You'd be forgiven, peace with God, go to heaven. That's a great outcome for us. But if I was to ask you the question of, how did Christ accomplish that on the cross? Like, what was the theological meaning of him dying on the cross? Like, what was actually happening on a spiritual level when he died on the cross? How did Christ accomplish Peace with God between you and him on the cross. What would your answer be there? What would your theory of the atonement be? I'm going to go through five theories of the atonement that have uh, been pervasive throughout the sweep of church history. There's a little bit of an intellectual thing. It might sound like a seminary thing, but it's, real, it's important that we know this because we want to be missionaries to this culture, but we also want to be theologians. So when you ask yourself the question, what is the theological significance of verse 24 and 25? Uh, we, he redeemed us. He's a propitiation as a propitiation by his blood. That's the atonement. What is the atonement meant? <laughs> Number one, um, in the early church, the early Christians believed that 
what happened on the cross is something called the ransom theory of atonement. Ransom. The ransom theory of atonement was, um, it was championed by a man named Origene. I think around like the second century around there. He's an early church father. And the ransom theory of the atonement was the dominant theory of, to explain what happened uh, on the cross. And it went like this. When Jesus died on the cross, uh, he paid the debt that we owed to Satan. And so when he died on the cross, uh, the debt that we owed because we're sinners, Satan, he ransomed that, and he freed us from Satan's grasp. You think of, um, of um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? You guys know that story of um, that scene towards the, on the second half of the movie, when the Ice Queen comes into the camp where uh, Aslan and, and the children are at, and uh, she points to Edmund. And Edmund had, I guess, betrayed one of his siblings and kind of broke some kind of moral rule of Narnia. And the Ice Queen, uh, she points to Edmund and said, he's mine. Right? Now, Aslan could have to- completely wiped her out. But he says he didn't do it, doesn't do anything because he, he knew that she had a claim on his life. And so that's why Aslan gives himself up. Edmund goes free. Aslan goes with the Ice Queen. The Ice Queen crucifies Aslan. But then, as we know, he rises from the dead in the end and defeats her, right? But that, that's the ransom theory, that there is this sense that we are Edmund. And the Ice Queen is Satan. And Aslan is Christ. And he gives himself up to ransom us from Satan, the Ice Queen, so to speak, in the movie. That was a dominant view of the atonement in the early church. A second theory was the moral theory of atonement. The moral theory of atonement. What was that? This was held by the church father, Augustine. Augustine was one of the most influential theologians in all of Western history. Uh, lived in the latter part of the 3rd and 4th century. And Augustine um, of Hippo, you know, which is a northern province of, of, of uh, north part of Africa, uh, he, he felt that the atonement was not just the ransom theory, but secondly was the moral theory of the atonement. That when Christ died on the cross, not only did he ransom us from the grip of Satan, but he also, in his death on the cross, showed us what a moral man would do to sacrifice himself for others. So that when we look at the cross, we see Jesus, the perfect moral man, and that he gave his life for us. And so we are to take this kind of moral lesson from Jesus of what it means to be a moral human being. A third theory of the atonement was what was called the Christus Victor theory of the atonement, the Christus Victor theory. And this theory was popular throughout church history throughout the Middle Ages. And the Christus Christus Victor theory, it's Latin, meaning the victory of Christ, was that Christ's death on the cross was to declare victory over sin, death, and Satan. So it was a victorious thing. It wasn't just a ransom thing. It was just a moral example. His death on the cross literally declared victory over the forces of evil on the cross and nailing it to the cross. Two more. You skip forward into the 12th century, 12th century, and there was a man named Anselm. And Anselm came along in the Middle Ages and he said, you know what? The early church had it wrong with the ransom theory. 
Because what the early church believed, kind of that Chronicles of Narnia, right? Edmund is ransomed from the ice queen's grips by Aslan and as if we, and we owed this debt to Satan. Anselm said, no, that's actually not true. Because the debt that was owed was not to Satan. It was to God. And so Anselm came up this, with this theory of atonement called the satisfaction theory of the atonement. And the satisfaction theory of the atonement said that Christ died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God on the cross. That we could not die on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God because we have lived lawless lives. And so we needed Christ to step forward to satisfy on our behalf the wrath of God. And that's called the satisfactory theory of the atonement. One more. The Protestant reformers, they came along in the 16th century and they said, no, this is you know, there are some elements of ransom theory, Christus Victor, moral theory, satisfaction. But, but really, um, the issue is this. What Christ accomplished on the cross, it's called the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. Penal, P-E-N-A-L, theory of atonement. Substitutionary atonement. And what the reformers, the Protestant reformers said was this. What Christ accomplished on the cross, when he died on the cross, was a penal, penalizing, substitutionary atonement. What that meant was Christ took the penalty for our sins, and he was the substitute on our behalf for our sins. He was the substitute. He wasn't just a satisfaction of God's wrath. He was the actual person who had to step into the cross on our behalf. Why is this important to you? That made it just, you know, some of you, you might have listened and go, oh, well, this is just all fine and interesting, Pastor Chris, but, you know, I'm not in seminary, so why do I have to know this? This is very important that you know this, because what the Reformers primarily said was the way we should look at the death of Christ is that Christ died on our behalf to satisfy the, the requirements of the law. And that's why God's wrath was poured out upon him. And you say, well, that's great. Protestant reformers left that for us over the past 500 years. So what does that mean for us today? Yeah, that's the best theory of atonement. But secondly, you have to understand this, you guys. We are living in a time right now where an unbelieving world, as well as a lot of people in the church, don't see the atonement that way anymore. See, what an unbelieving world and even unbelievers in the church, in a 21st century post-Christian age, Look at the atonement. We'll look at a verse like verse uh, 24 and 25, and they'll say, no, 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 no. All of these other theories you just mentioned, Pastor Chris, are wrong. See, that was like undeveloped, because we, in the sophisticated 21st century context, now look at the atonement of Christ as this guy died on the cross simply as a good man to show us that if we believe in a cause greatly enough, we too should be willing to sacrifice our lives unto death for something that we truly believe in will make the world better. And so notice this. A pagan world is now redefining the atonement of Christ by saying that Jesus died on the cross not to satisfy the wrath of God as our substitute because, oh, you know, that, that theory is wrong an unbelieving world will say because that just shows that God's a bully. You know, he couldn't kick us around, so he just kicks Christ down, and God's not a bully, so that can't be right. No, an unbelieving world will say that can't be right. What has to be right is Christ died 
to show us that when you truly believe in a way to make the world a better place and to help people, you should be willing to die for it. And that's the message we should take away from the cross. You, you may think that that's a theologically nuanced thing, but I'm telling you guys, that is infiltrating the church. That is how an unbelieving world is redefining the faith. You have to know at a deeper level, it is not just about you being forgiven and you going to heaven. That's a byproduct. What the gospel is truly about is God's righteousness on display. The gospel is about Jesus Christ coming in human form to fulfill God's law and to die on the cross when we were enemies of Christ, of God, so that we could be brought to God. And, so, and he did that as the sacrifice for our sins in a way that we could not. The propitiation by his blood, verse 25 again. This is why you have to know, you guys, you have to, you, you do not have the luxury, okay? I'll just be straight with you. We don't live in Christendom anymore. Okay, we had it good for a long time here in America. I mean, you can go back to, um, you know, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And uh, Christendom where it was where... America was really informed by Christian values. It didn't mean everyone went to church or everyone was Christian or read their Bible. It doesn't mean that at all. But it meant that in America, Christendom, there was a sense that uh, Christianity informed the values of the pop culture. It's not the case anymore. It's a free-for-all society. And the world is redefining our faith for us. And if you do not think like a theologian on a deep level, the world will run circles around you. I mean, don't you think? I mean, you guys watch, you listen to talk radio. You listen to these podcasts. The world is pretty intelligent in terms of their ability to articulate arguments, right? I mean, they're, they're false when it comes to ultimate truth, but they're pretty deadly in terms of having tongues like, like asps and throats like graves, right? You hear how um, astute these people are cutting people down on talk radio. And you as a Christian have got to be informed on the deep theological nuances of your faith so that you don't get intimidated by the world. You don't have to study all the error of the world. All you have to know is study the truth so you can recognize the error. And the third point for today is in this passage, he's holding up the righteousness of God for why Christ died. He's talking about the meaning of the atonement, the propitiation, the substitutionary atonement for our sins, the satisfaction for our sins. And in verse 28, and those verses surrounding, he's saying the gospel, salvation, the law of faith, it's for Jew and Gentile. He says in verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Most people miss this. They're going to live by the law of the world or redefine the law. Most people will try and live by God's law on their own outside of the law of faith in Jesus Christ. You're here and what you're saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I have chosen as a Christian to to exit the darkness, to see past the lie, to stop being the puppet of Satan. And I, as a Christian, I'm now going to stand not on my own abilities to fulfill the law, but to trust my faith in Jesus Christ 
and his work on the cross. Now, some of you young people, you might listen to that and go, no, I've been hearing that since I was a kid. What else you got for me, Pastor? But I will tell you this. I'll tell you this. Those of us who are older, okay, this hits us in a different way, and it will you one day, because when you get older, here's what happens. You read a passage, you don't take it for granted anymore. And the reason why you don't is primarily for two reasons. One is when you get older, you have a larger collect data collection set of what life has been like and what church has been like. And you come to two realizations when you're older. Number one, when you live long enough, you recognize how many Christians have abandoned their profession of faith. And you recognize, no, you know what? They have abandoned their profession of faith. Maybe um, probably wasn't even real in the first place. They live now by the law of the world or the law of God outside of Christ. They try and live by that. And you, you start to see so many people that you start, once went to church with, that you served with, that you prayed with, that you were for sure, that you maybe even looked up to them and they just fall like stars from the sky. And it, you have, that happens enough to you, and even at a personal level, you realize, oh my goodness, not everyone gets this and understands the importance of living by the law of faith in Jesus Christ. And the second thing that happens to you when you get older is you become much more aware of your own mortality. Uh, used to be your parents' funerals you went to. Now it's your friends. You start to have health issues. And you recognize, you know what? Uh, yeah, I have lived my life. I've had a career. I've had friends. I've had great experiences. But you recognize the futility, the outer futility of the wickedness of the human heart apart from Christ. And you recognize how important it is to have faith in Christ. Because Christ, as the living fulfillment of God's law, makes possible the righteousness of God in your life. God imputes his righteousness, which means he sees you no longer as a sinner. He sees you as a, as a saint. He imputes his righteousness to you, and he imparts his righteousness to you through Christ. He actually gives you his righteousness. He doesn't just see you as righteous. He imputes and imparts righteousness to you through Christ, and you need that. Because as you get older, you realize, O-M-G, I need that. And if I don't have that, if human beings don't have that, the law of the world and the law of God outside of Christ will not change the human heart, will not change the human soul. And we don't want that. We want God. Because God is the right way. God is the truth. God is the life. And God is the way. And when you have that, you're going to make it. When you have that uh, to your dying breath, you're going to be in the right place with God. Okay? I don't know where your life is right now. You might be unemployed. You might be having health issues. You might be in a place where you're looking at your life. I did not accomplish the dreams I had when I was a teen in my 20s, and now look where I'm at. You may be in a number of places. You, your family may be going through turmoil. Whatever that might be for your life right now. But what the Lord has for you today is not, there's a place for this, but it's not today, is not for you to walk away from this time and say, this is the five things I need to do to have more joy. This is the five things I need to do to fix my relationships. These are the five things I need to do to have more positive outcome on, uh, 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 look on my own life. What the Lord has for you today is to say, look, 
Recognize that if you're a follower of Christ, you live by the perfect law of faith in Christ. And he has made God's righteousness available to you. God's righteousness should be on display in your life. That is what will give you life, will give you healing. And uh, will allow God to do his work in your life, both now and in eternity. Let's pray together. Fathers, we close this time to worship you. I pray that your righteousness would be on display in our lives through the law of faith in Christ. That he is held up as our sacrifice, as our substitute um, on the cross. And um, Lord, sometimes the deepest needs of the human heart, as straightforward as it might be, can be healed and can be made right with you by simply looking to the cross, to looking to Jesus. And that's what I pray, Lord, for every soul here, that they may look to you, Jesus, in faith, crying out to you for the righteousness of God in their lives. Some of us are here tonight, we might feel like an empty tank of the righteousness of God. And yet, when we come back to you, Lord, your righteousness heals us. It reminds us of the eternal life that we have in Christ. It makes right what is wrong. And so may we place our faith in that, Lord, in the crucified Christ, in the risen Christ. May we not forget the depths in which we have been raised from to be with Christ. And so as now as we rise to worship you, Lord, pray this would honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together and we'll close in worship.